Well, good morning. Let's um, get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we bow before you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, so blessed are we to be able to come together as the body of Christ. We rejoice in that opportunity. And Lord, thank you for your indwelling spirit that illumines our minds and helps us to understand the scriptures that we'll look at this morning. Lord, they are so rich and such a blessing to us. Pray that we'd be diligent to hide them in our heart, that they might influence the way that we think and the way we behave. So Lord, have your freedom this morning to speak to us, help us to understand, and may you be given glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This is week number 21 in our study of eschatology, and we're over in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36. And so we just about finished this chapter last week. And you remember that in this chapter, um, Ezekiel begins and, and elaborates on how God is going to bless Israel. And when he says Israel, he's speaking both of the physical land and also the people who will live in the land. And so um, we've seen that the, the land itself will be changed, that the trees will begin to bear fruit again, and that the plants and vegetation will be plentiful, that the fields will be cultivated and seeded, uh, that the harvest will be great, that there will no longer be a famine in all of Israel. And of course, we're talking here about the Millennial Kingdom and what will take place in the land of Israel during the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, the most striking thing to me about this chapter is when in verses 25 through 27, God talks about salvation for national Israel, what he'll do. And we see that he'll wash away their sins that he'll renew their spirit and their soul within them, and that he'll put his spirit within them that they might be obedient to him. Same thing that we see happens for New Testament believers will here be true for national Israel. So all those who are still in the land that God has not sent out of the land because they're unbelievers will be saved um, by God himself. And we saw that and not only is God the one doing all these actions, but God has a reason to do them other than to be a blessing to Israel. And that is that he's doing it so that his name, which has been profaned among the nations, might be vindicated. And might, he might be shown as holy among the nation of Israel. And so that's really God's motive and everything that we see taking place here in the millennial kingdom is not for the sake of the people who are blessed. Certainly that happens and that is true, but his reason is so that he might vindicate his name, that he might be shown as holy, that the whole world would see that God is the Lord, he says. And so that is true. You know, in, in the world we live in, <clears throat> the world doesn't believe there is God, and certainly not that there is a God who is sovereign over his creation. Not only did he not create it, but he's not sovereign over it. 
is the belief in the world today, well, that will be radically changed during the millennial kingdom. Everyone will understand that God is the creator and that he is sovereign and can do whatever he well pleases with his creation because he will. And it will be shown most, mainly in the nation of Israel. It will be very evident, but it will be evident across the whole world also. And so that's what God's purpose is in the millennial kingdom is to show who he really is and to fulfill the promises that he gave all the way back to really to Genesis and then repeated to Abraham. Go ahead, Andy. It's, it's there. Out of Zechariah? Right. Well, it, the Lord of hosts and to keep the Feast of Booths. So go study the Feast of Booths because we're going to be participating in that beautiful feast that takes place. Um, and, and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem, right, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Right. Physical rain. Does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain, there shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the feast of the birth booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of the booths. That is just such an important And this is during the millennial reign. I mean and most of those people, well, clearly the ones who don't go, are unbelievers during the millennial reign. So the earth goes on as it goes on today. It's just there's a reign of righteousness coming out of Jerusalem and the saints reigning over those nations, but that doesn't mean the nations are obedient to what God wants them to do. So this goes, and, and that famine, the no rain, will never happen in the land of Israel. So to be very distinct, as nations don't go up to Jerusalem and they experience no rain and famine, while Israel does not, that God is the Lord. I mean, that'll make it even more evident. I don't know what a monkey wrench is, but, but that's a monkey wrench. Right. Most people think about this kingdom that's coming. Right? And, and it is coming, and it will be a glorious place, but it's not all good on the earth. Which is why at the end of the millennial reign, the whole earth again rebels against Jesus and Jerusalem. And you can see that over in Revelation chapter 20, that after the thousand year reign, Satan is released again. And all the nations again gather 
to against Israel and Jesus. Um, and we are not even told that, you know, the first time they do that, it's a slaughter. It's just a speaking of the word and they're all killed. We're not even told how they'll be destroyed over in Revelation 20 the second time. We just are told that all of a sudden you're before the great wide throne judgment and you're thrown into the lake of fire. And, and that's true, that even while Christ reigns, they won't submit. And even as they parade before him to give him honor, they won't submit. It's, it's just, it's, it's very, very different how I, from how I was ever taught. Um, clearly, clearly, um, the scriptures teach differently than the baggage that I was given growing up in church. It's just not true. And, and all you have to do is read, and it becomes very evident that it's not true. Now, to understand the final blessing, there's one thing in chapter 36 we didn't get to that I want to go back to, and it's really in the last two verses, but we'll read the last four verses in Ezekiel 36. We got right down to this, and I mentioned it, but I want us to look at it in a little more detail than we did last time. So in beginning in Ezekiel 36, 35, they will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I'll let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with the flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So you can see very clearly that God's purpose in all of this is so that everybody recognizes that he is the Lord, meaning he's the sovereign over what he has created, that there is no higher authority, he is the authority. That's his reason for doing all this. And then in 35 and 36, you see the other nations looking at Israel and saying, this place is like the Garden of Eden, or at least what they imagine the Garden of Eden would have been like. So there is huge physical blessings in the, in the land of Israel, the land that God gave to Abraham, because it repeatedly in this, and I, I may go back and we'll look at this, he bookends the salvation of, well, I, I think we can see this. He bookends the salvation of national Israel. Look at this back in... Um, 25 through 27 is their salvation. So in 24, notice that he says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. 
in verse 24. Then 25, 26, and 27 is their salvation. And then 28, he says, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So he bookends their salvation with them living in the land. So the land is significant. It's, it's all part of the salvation of Israel because that's what vindicates God's name because that's what he promised. And if he doesn't do that, then his name isn't vindicated. He didn't keep his promises. And so even there you can see that he bookends the salvation of national Israel with them living in the land. So I didn't say that. God did. And he said it for a reason, and it is important for a reason. Now, over in 35 through in 36, we see first that they're like the Garden of Eden, that all the nations will recognize that he is the Lord, he's the sovereign. And then in 37 and 38 is the final thing that I want us to talk about for a minute, because I think it leads into chapter 37. So it's important that we get this transition. God says he'll allow Israel to ask him to bless them so that their men will be like flocks. There will be a lot of them. And he, he gives an analogy here of how many men where there will be. And he says that it'll be like like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast so will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Now, you have to get this imagery of what he's talking about. Three times a year, the law said that the men of Israel, not the women, but the women often went with the men, but the men of Israel had to gather to the central place of worship three times a year. Um, there are more feasts than that, but three times a year, they had to gather to the central place of worship, which would have been Jerusalem, okay? Because King David moved the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, still had the tabernacle system with the tent. Then Solomon built the temple. Then Solomon moved the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the tabernacle was no longer to be. The presence of God came and left that temple. It came and left the temple that Zerubbabel later rebuilt. But that's the central place of worship in Jerusalem. So that's what he says here, that flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. Now, three times a year, you have these feasts. You have um, the Passover and the unleavened bread pictured, um, this is where Christ comes in and drives all the people out of the temple. And you can remember the imagery is that the place is flooded with people, with money changers, with flocks. It's just wall-to-wall -wall people because everybody from the nation of Israel has traveled to Jerusalem. At least they were supposed to have traveled to Jerusalem. You can remember that Christ preaching to the um, the crowds in the temple during that time. And it's just wall-to-wall -wall people. So that's what he says that it's going to be like. Now, that's in the first month of the Israel calendar um, is, the, um, is the Passover and the unleavened bread. You have the um, 
Pentecost coming 50 days later. That was the second time. And then in the seventh month of the year, you also have three feasts, and that's the, um, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and the Feast of Trumpets. The Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Tabernacles. All happening in that same month, all very close together. Not as close together as Pentecost and Unleavened Bread. Those are literally back-to-back, -back, same over four days. You have um, those feasts. But then here, I think it's over like 14 days, you've got these feasts in the seventh month. And again, all the men travel to Israel and it is wall, I mean, travel to Jerusalem, and it's wall-to-wall -wall people. You have, the crowd is so thick you can hardly move. And he says, that's what the land of Israel is going to be like when I bless them with flocks of men. So it's going to be wall-to-wall -wall people in, Jer in uh, Jerusalem and all the other cities of Israel. It's, it's fascinating when you go to the Gospel of John and John 7, 37 and 38. When Jesus cries that verse out, which first of all, the, the language suggests he literally empties himself with that yell. I mean, it was, a, it was, and it was the Feast of the Trumpets is a point where there's a procession right. where all of Israel is silent. So if you've ever been in a huge, I mean, massive crowd of people where everyone is dead quiet, that's the moment that Jesus shouted right. that passage in John 7, 37. And he's pointing exactly to this, this point. Absolutely. Yeah, and that feast of trumpets, there's this great processional that goes through Jerusalem and it winds up going underneath the water gate. And when it goes under the water gate is when they become quiet. So the whole place is deathly silent. And you don't get that when you read John. But, he, I mean, the scriptures clearly say that, but you just miss it. That Jesus Christ, in the midst of the silence, stands up. And that's when he begins to say, if any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me. Well, it's the water gate. Everybody gets the picture of what he's talking about. It's not like that imagery was lost on them. And so Christ stands up and, and calls all of Israel to himself at that moment. Um, in, in the right imagery, in the recognition of the feast that was for him to do exactly that. And, and so, I mean, the scriptures, if you just ever get the picture of everything that they teach, are just amazing that we just miss because we don't study enough. Um, yeah, when, when I talked through John verse by verse, that was just very clear of what Christ was doing during the time of the feast. So, I mean, we need to have this imagery that not only is there plenty to eat, there's plenty to be, eat for abundant number of people. They're wall to wall in the cities of, of Israel, and all the nations see this. They see that there's this great horde of people, much more than they had expected. I'll tell you, much more that were there when God gathered all the people of the nations together. So how can that be? Chapter 37, I believe, explains that. Now, again, this is one of those things I've never heard anybody teach. Okay, And I could be right or I could be wrong. But I think it follows 
those two verses where he says, the cities will be full of flocks of men for a reason. So we'll begin to look at chapter 37 and see exactly what it's talked about. Now there are, there are three specific prophecies in chapter 37. And the first is the, um, the valley of dry bones. The second is the reuniting of Israel and Judah. The third is the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. And they just come one after the other after the other. And so I want to look at this valley of dry bones. We won't get through it today. Maybe we'll get the picture of what happens, but not the interpretation. Because God gives not only what happens, he gives what it means. And you can't miss it. I mean, it's, it's in very plain language. So let's begin to walk through this um, this part of the, the part of Ezekiel. So, what I want to do is just read the first ten verses of chapter thirty-seven. So we'll have in our mind what's going on here. So thirty-seven, beginning in verse one, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling had the bone... And the bones came together, bone on its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Okay, so there you have the Valley of Dry Bones and what takes place there. Now, the first question that comes into my mind, is this a vision or is Ezekiel literally taken to a valley full of dry bones and they're all around him. And notice that Ezekiel is in the middle of the valley. I'll show you why I, I think that's pretty significant a little bit later on here. So is this a vision? How do you know? It doesn't say it is. Right. Which is, sounds like maybe, 
right? Let me show you that. Let me show you. You don't have to guess at this. That you can know specifically that this is a vision. This is not something that literally takes place. Although the literal significance of it is very important. Okay, look at the very first verse of Ezekiel. The very first verse, Ezekiel 1, 1 through 3. Now it came about in the third, 13th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chibar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came to me expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon me. Notice that phrase, the hand of the Lord came upon me. Now look back over at 37. You'll notice he says, the first thing he says, the hand of the Lord came upon me. And here in chapter 1, he says, I saw visions. So the visions of God. So it's very clear that when he says, the hand of the Lord came upon me, that he's talking about visions. There's another place. Look in chapter 8 in the first verse. This is what you need to do as you study the scriptures. Has he said the same thing some other place that we can gain understanding of what he's saying over in chapter 37? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me. Same phrase. Then I looked, and behold, the likeness as the appearance of a man from his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the heaven and the earth and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. Specifically says visions, says he was caught up by the Spirit, says the hand of the Lord was upon me. He's seeing something that's not actually happening. This is where Ezekiel goes into the temple, literally digs through the wall of the temple and sees the abominations of the people. So he's not literally doing that, but it's a vision that he has. Okay, then over in chapter 40 in verse 1. We hadn't gotten there, but we can gain some understanding from it. Chapter 40, verse 1. Do you think he's specific about the times in this book? I mean, in the year, the month, and the day. He does it over and over again. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th month, year, in the 14th year after the city was taken, the fall of Jerusalem, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there in the visions of God. He brought me into the land of Israel. So you see the hand of the Lord and the visions of God. So while he doesn't say it in chapter 37, I think you're right. 
that he's talking about something that doesn't literally take place, but Ezekiel sees this vision, and for him it's real, but it doesn't physically take place. But that doesn't downplay the significance of it, because God does it for a reason. And then he gives them the answer of what the reason is. So, the hand of the Lord was upon me, in verse 1, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. So, Ezekiel gets this vision, and for him it's vivid. This is like the visions that John has in the Revelation. It's no different. Same thing. John says, caught up in the Spirit, taken up into the heavens, and God showed me, and then he goes on for six or seven chapters, his visions last for. So same thing is happening here to Ezekiel. It's in vivid color. He sees it very clearly. It's not, for him it's real. For us it's a vision. Okay? So he says that the valley is full of bones. Now, you can imagine Ezekiel. We don't know how big this valley is. But it's got to be pretty big for there to be an exceedingly great army in it. And so he's standing in the middle, and there's all these bones. Everywhere he looks, there's just dry bones. Everywhere. And so and he's in the middle of the valley. He says in verse 2, he caused me to pass among them round about and behold there were very many and they were very dry so ezekiel is literally walking about all these bones he's just marveling that there's so many of them and they go on as far as he can see in the valley the whole valley is full of these dry bones okay so um, i mean you can read this it's not like this is hard to understand but there's some things i want to point out and God asks Ezekiel a question. Can these bones live? Meaning, I believe these are human bones. And they're recognizable as human bones. And so you take your skeleton and, and break it apart. And that's what's laying on the ground here. You can see the ribs. You can see the legs. You can see the arms. You can see the wrists. You can see the fingers. You can see the toes. You can see all of that, right, in a skeleton. And so God asks Ezekiel, can these bones come to life? And Ezekiel gives a very good answer, right? When you don't know the answer, this is the right thing to say. God, you know, right? I don't have a clue if these bones can come to life, but I know that you know. Yeah, yeah, I, you, you can do anything you want to do. But I don't know if they can come to life or not. So he gives a, a good answer. That's the right thing to answer. And so God goes on and he says, um, I want you to prophesy over these bones. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen as you prophesy over them. And he, so he tells them that um, these bones will come alive. I'll put breath in them, and they will come alive. He tells them, so the assumption here is these are human bones, right? Because as they stand up, then they're a great army. Those are people. Those are literal people. And so the assumption is that they're human bones, and they once belonged to people who have died. 
and they died a long time ago because the bones are very dry, okay? Meaning that the marrow's dried up and there's no life in them at all. They're completely dried up. And, you know, you can imagine this. What I think of when I think about this is some of the dirt around my house that when it hasn't rained for a couple of weeks and the Georgia sun has baked it, it's like concrete. And then it rains and I can dig in it just fine. But that's what's going on here. These bones are, have been baking in this valley and they're totally dry. Matter of fact, they may be crumbling. They're so dry. Okay, so God says, I'm going to put life in them. And when the bones come alive, then this is the reason that he does it. Then the people, those people who come alive, will know that I'm the Lord. So I'm going to show myself to be the Lord by causing these bones to come back alive. And so that's the purpose of everything that God does here in the Millennial Kingdom. All of it is to show that he's the Lord. And we miss that when we talk about Revelation. We miss it when we talk about Ezekiel. We miss it when we talk about the minor prophets. All of this is for the purpose of giving glory to God. <laughs> but right where we were in John, after Jesus said that, there was a reaction which tells you many of them understood that this was coming straight out of the Tanakh. Sure. This was scripture that Jesus was speaking about himself that came straight out of scriptures because it says when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, and here's the... Is the Christ to come from Galilee? So they knew the scripture. Sure. But they did not properly interpret the time. And they completely missed the fact that he was from Bethlehem. They didn't bother to find out about him. They didn't bother, bother to seek him and understand all the truths about him. And consequently, they, with the exception of Nicodemus at that moment, who was the only Pharisee that stood up and said, wait a minute. The leaders convince the people by saying this. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? And that to me is a warning hmm. as to who we sit under and who we follow and whether or not they are faithful to the word of God, teaching it as it has been laid down versus their own way of thinking and protecting their seats of power and privilege. Yeah, which is why I always tell you to be Berean, right? You don't have to believe this because I say it. Matter of fact, I don't want you to believe it because I say it. I want you to believe it because it's what the scripture says. And so, I mean, you need to study this for yourself. I'll try and give you some guidelines, and I'm glad to do that. And I'm, it's joyous for me because I get to dig in deep. But, I mean, am I right or am I wrong? And I'm good with people pushing back on me. Because all I do is tell you what the scripture says. So far, so good? Okay. Well, let's see what happens. 7, 8, 9, and 10, Ezekiel does what God commands him to do. So he gives a good answer, and then he does exactly what God told him to do. So I prophesied as I was commanded in verse 7, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. That doesn't quite tell you the whole story. It wasn't just a noise. It was like thunder. 
It was loud. It was overwhelming. It was so much noise. And these bones begin to move. And they begin to join, and it says, bone on its bone. So the right bodies got the right bones. You know, the, the seven-foot-tall guy didn't get the five-foot-tall guy's legs. They all went to the right place. So bone on bone. So you can imagine, he's standing in the middle of the valley. There's probably bones all around him, and those bones begin to move. And it's, I mean, it's loud, because all these bones in this whole huge valley are moving at the same time. And so these bones begin to align themselves into skeletons. And as they do that, then it says that sinews begin to grow on them. Now, what's a sinew? If you look it up, it's a tendon. And what are tendons for? Tendons are to connect muscles to bones so that you can move. Without tendons and muscles, you can't move. So I assume here, as he talks about sinews, he's also talking about muscles and, and all those soft t tissues beginning to form. And then he says, and skin begins to grow over these sinews and these muscles. So you get a full body of skin. So what about the insides? You've got to believe that all the internal organs also formed, right? Because these are going to come alive. And a person can't live without the internal organs, without their brain. So all of these things are being developed at the same time as the skin grows over it all. Now you can just imagine, right? <laughs> I mean, Ezekiel standing there and watching this as these bodies literally are put together by God according to the prophecy of Ezekiel. And I, I kind of have a wonder, if Ezekiel hadn't prophesied, would the bodies have come together? I think the answer is no. And so Ezekiel does what God tells him to do, and he watches these bodies form together. And he says in verse 8, they came together, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them, meaning they're not alive, they're still dead. Their bodies, now get this, you can't see the bones anymore, but everywhere you look, there are bodies, full, put-together bodies, laying on the ground. Because a, a body can't, a dead body can't stand up. Right? You've never seen a dead body standing up unless it was propped up by something. And so all these bodies are laying on the ground. So the bones are gone, but they're inside the bodies. And there's this host of dead people that Ezekiel's now standing in the midst of. And so, okay, God, now what, what next? And he says in verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy and say to the breath. Son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, and that's the east, west, north, and south. That's what it always means when it says four corners or winds or whatever. It's talking about the, the compass. Come from everywhere, basically, and breathe on the sl these slain that they come to life. So he does that. He breathes on them. And then notice what he says. And he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and then look, and stood on their feet. 
So these bodies that are laying on the ground, the breath comes into them, they all stand up, and he looks at them and says, this isn't, and now he's in the middle of alive people that he's never seen before, going, wow. And they're like an exceedingly great army. The whole valley is now full of live people. So what is this? This is resurrection. This is recreation. This is God doing what only God can do, putting the bones and the bodies back together. So it becomes the question, who are these people? And from where did they come? Next week, as we get into the interpretation of what he's saying here, right? What does this mean? And that comes in the next four verses. So it'll take us a little bit of time to walk through those and to decide, I'll tell you what I believe, who these people are. I'll even give you some of their names. And then you have to decide what you believe. Okay? So that'll be for next time. So we have all these live people now living, standing in this valley. It's just a vision. It's not literal, but there's a day coming when it will be literal, and that's what God says in what this means. He gives it very clearly. He speaks in very clear language. It's not hard to understand. And so we'll get it, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Okay? Thanks for your time.